Amen. Merry Christmas. Uh, I hope the same was, was true for you this morning on the, on the drive in. Um, I, I, I couldn't wait to get here. Um, I really couldn't. I was just really excited to, to worship this morning. We get to worship on, on Easter, uh, on, on Sunday, every Easter, right? Easter is always on a Sunday. We always get to worship together on Easter. We don't always get to worship together uh, on Christmas. And, um, and for whatever reason, um, God has just been working, even in my own heart, over the past you know, four weeks or so as we've been working through Advent, um, I think preparing me for today. And, and I was just, um, I don't know, full of joy and, and anticipation and, uh, and, and expectation of how God would even meet with us as we worship together this morning. And so I hope that was true for you uh, uh, on your way in. And, and so um, I look forward to what, what God has for us in his word this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, uh, I invite you to open them with me to 1 John chapter 4, uh, verses 7 through 12. Not the gospel of John, but the first of John's letters. It's going to be toward the back of your Bibles. Um, probably easier just to start at the back and, and, and then flip forward a few pages until you get to 1 John. We're uh, wrapping up our, our Advent season uh, on this, the uh, Christmas Sunday, and, and also the last Sunday of 2016. And so uh, after this, I won't see you all again until next year. And... Um, See, those of you who are awake caught that. That's good. And, uh, and we look forward to that as well. We've talked about the promise of, of God to us at Christmas these last uh, three weeks. And now today, the promise of uh, peace, the promise of hope. Last week, the promise of joy that is to us at Christmas. Uh, and this week, we, we finish with the promise of God's love fulfilled to us uh, at, at Christmas. And we're not... Preaching, I'm not preaching from the, the nativity narrative from Matthew or for, from Luke. And some of you might be a little bit um, concerned about that. I don't know, but I hope that you're not. Uh, and as we open God's word together in First John, uh, we're going to see how the promise of love is to us fulfilled at Christmas. It was uh, in the late 1960s that the singer uh, Jackie DeShannon uh, informed all of us that what the world needs now is love. Sweet love, right? Not, not mountains. We don't need more trees. We don't need more rivers or lakes or streams. We've got plenty of those, she said. What, what we need is, is love, sweet love. And, and certainly we, we do all and probably can remember sometime in our life this pursuit of, of love, looking for love in our lives. Young girls often wait by the phone for it to ring so that they can hear their uh, bow on the other end saying, I just called to say, I love you. But if you're not careful, girls, you'll go looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> Singing, chasing after your bow, singing, love, love me do. You know I love you. I'll always be true. But please, please love me too. You may reach a point in your life where, where you can say of yourself right, to, to the one that you have loved or the one who's supposed to love you, you have lost that loving feeling. Oh, oh, that loving feeling. You've lost that loving feeling and it's gone, gone, gone. You're glad I didn't sing all of those this morning. Amen, they say. Oh, mercy. But love is like, it's everywhere, right? We all want it. We all chase after it. That's why Stevie Wonder and Jackie DeShannon and other people write, write songs about love. The Beatles 
write songs about love because it's just it's part of who we are and what we want. And yet all of these songs, even about love, almost all of them have this this sort of silent undertone of disappointment in love. That, That it's not always everything it's cracked up to be. There's always something that's just not quite right about it. As we look at God's word this morning, though, in in 1 John 4, 7 through 12, we're going to see that the promise of love, of perfect love, of true love, is fulfilled at Christmas because God, in order to show his love to us, has sent his son to be born. And not just to be born to be born, but to be born that he might die for our sins. And so that we might have life in the name of Jesus and even the ability to love like God has loved us. A love that doesn't disappoint. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12, the apostle writes this. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves, God, whoever, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this... The love of God was made manifest, was revealed among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, God loved us this way, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As we look at the promise of love fulfilled to us at at Christmas in John's letter to the early church, I want us to notice uh, just three brief things. First, the appeal to love in verses 7 and 8. There, John appeals to the audience, the early church, as he was writing, saying, Beloved, let us love one another. Why? Because... Love is from God, right? Because God is the source of love. John makes his appeal to the church that they love one another as believers in Jesus, that they love one another because God is the source of love. He's here giving a a collective command. It's a cohortative command. He's saying, let's all of us together. It's almost pastoral in tone. Let's all of us together love one another based on the fact that, John says, love has God as its source, as its fountain, as its originator. 1 John 4, 16, just a few verses later, John writes this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, he says. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. John says very plainly that that God is the source of love because God is love. Now, that's almost like a mathematical equation, right? God is love. But the reverse of that is not true, right? God is love is not the same as love is God, okay? We, we, as the church, we worship the source of love. We worship the the thing, the one that has created love. Not love itself. Not this this expression. Not even this, this act of giving of yourself to one another. And at the same time, we recognize that it is the source of love that defines the love that we give. And not the love that we give that defines the source. Does that make sense? It is God who defines what we love and how we love and where and when we love. It's not how we, it's not our act of giving love to someone else that creates God, if that makes sense. So John appeals to the church to love because God is the source of love. But he also appeals to them uh, to love because the ability to love comes by their very redemption. Their ability to love comes because they have been saved from sin and know God. 
The second part of verse one or uh, verse seven, excuse me, says this. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And here we see that love comes as a result of having been born again, having been born of God and of knowing God personally, not just knowing things about him, but but knowing him by experience. Right. The way that the way that my wife knows me, not that she just knows who I am, but she knows me by experience and because of a relationship that we have. Immediately, as we read this verse, right, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Our minds are probably jumping to John's gospel in chapter three. There in John chapter three, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, a religious ruler in the middle of the night. And he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so he says to Nicodemus, do not marvel, do not wonder that I've said to you, you must be born again. He says, Nicodemus, don't be surprised that I've said that, even though Nicodemus' mind is just exploding at this point. Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So what is it? Jesus says, we, we can't be a part of the kingdom. We can't know God unless we're born again. So then what does it mean to be born again, to be born of God? Well, to be born again is to, to be redeemed. That's a, that's a church word. To be saved. Even that has church connotations. What it means is to be forgiven of your sin. To have your, your sin wiped away, washed away, for, forgotten and overlooked by God. And, and not just because God wants to give it to you, but because he gives it to you as a response to your belief in the virgin birth and the substitutionary death for our sin and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And not just belief in these historical facts, not just belief that these things happened. You're not saved just because you believe Jesus was born in a manger at Christmas. You're saved because you, you believe on Jesus You rest your life on him, the person, not just the facts of his life, but the individual. This baby who was born, who would grow to be a man, live a perfect sinless life, die on the cross as a substitute for my sin and for yours, and to be raised again from the dead. The person who believes in Jesus, who trusts in Jesus that way, has been given new spiritual life. He's been born again, as Jesus says. And they can, for the first time in, in this new spiritual life, know their creator. To be born of God, then you can know God. John also, in verse 8, states the opposite of knowing and loving God, right? If someone who loves has been born of God and knows God, then the inverse is also true. Anyone who does not love, what? Does not know God. Because God is love. The one who does not know God is, as John is saying, incapable of love. You're saying, really, Stephen, you're telling me that 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 just because somebody doesn't know Jesus, hasn't been born again, that they can't love. Yes and no. In one sense, we we are all as we're born in the image of God, capable of of loving, of expressing love, of of expressing devotion and and even self-sacrifice for someone else. But apart from knowing God in Christ, it is impossible to love truly. Jonathan Edwards, we've already heard from this morning, which, by the way, was Danny's uh, uh, Christmas gift to me, whether you knew it or not, was to quote Jonathan Edwards in worship. But Jonathan Edwards, colonial theologian of the 1700s, he would say that an act of love that we show on our own, apart from the source of true love, is not really truly loving. 
Yes, we can love and we can show love as humans apart from being right with God, apart from being born again and knowing God. But, but it will always be incomplete. It'll always be an inadequate shadow of true love. It doesn't mean that your ability to love apart from Christ is false love. It's just not true love. Think about it this way. If you've ever ridden a bicycle with a front wheel that isn't true, that isn't balanced, right? That, that wheel wobbles as you roll. And that is not a comfortable ride on the bicycle. Or, or if you're a, a marksman or, or maybe an archer, if, if you shoot a gun whose, whose barrel is not true or you shoot an, an arrow, uh, the shaft of which is not perfectly straight, what happens to that bullet as it leaves that, that wobbled rifle or that arrow as it leaves the bow if it's not true? Right? The thing just wobbles and sways all over the place and it doesn't land where you want it to. The same is true of love. It's not that we can't love. We just, apart from Christ, can't love truly. Love will never be what God has designed it to be between human beings apart from Christ in us, apart from us being born again, born of God and knowing God. This morning, I would encourage all of us to love truly by knowing the one who is love itself. Love truly by knowing the one who is love itself. Have you ever tried to fix a part on your car that was just really particularly stubborn? Like you're fixing the brakes and the, you can't get the caliper off or you just you can't figure out how to get that one bolt loose to get it off. And, and you've got the manual and you've got the tools, but you just can't, you can't, something's not right. It's just not adding up. And what you really need is Henry Ford right next to you to, to show you which Henry Ford, you know, he's the namesake of Ford Motor Company for those young people who might not know that. What you need is the one who invented the car, right? Who, who, who designed the assembly line to sit there next to you and say, this is how you do it, man. And then he'll make it look really easy, right? In a similar, in a similar but, but so much more meaningful way. When we struggle to love As believers, as Christians, when we struggle to love, what we need to do is to maintain this discipline of going to the source of true love so that we can truly love. And we love God first above anyone else and everyone else so that we can love everyone else as God would love them. We can love truly because we are loving God. John gives us an appeal to love because God is the source of love and and because we can only love truly when we are redeemed. But then in verses 9 and 10, he shows us the true demonstration of love. And this is is where we're going to kind of nail down at at Christmas time here. The true demonstration of love. He says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The true demonstration of love is this, that God's son is born to die so that we can live. God's son is born to die so that we can live. John says in this, in this way, the love of God is manifest, coming manifest. That word comes from the Greek word, phanerao. You just throw that away. You don't need to know that Greek word anymore. But that word just means to reveal or to make manifest in a clear and detailed way, to show a thing for what it really is, to pull back the curtain, to unveil the, the mystery, if you will. This is John's way of saying this is how God, the source and true definition of love, has chosen to show his love to us by sending his son so we can live through him. This life, this real life, spiritual life that John is talking about is defined again by 
John in his gospel in John chapter 3, again, verses 16 through 18. There where Jesus continues in his discussion with Nicodemus saying this, For God so loved the world, or a better way to read that would be, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We love John 3.16. We love John 3.16. We don't so much love John 3.18 because John 3.18 tells us that we're not all immediately saved. Not every person who has ever been born is automatically in a right relationship with God. In fact, the opposite. When we're born, we're born into sin and, and with a sinful nature and sinful hearts that want to do sinful things, rebellious things against God. We want to take control of our own lives. And John is here saying through the words of Jesus in his own life that, that apart from faith in Christ, if you don't believe in this Jesus, you're not saved. You, you stand in your own condemnation for sin. Simply because Jesus came, simply because he was born, doesn't save us. But only those who are trusting in him are saved. And yet that's the the beauty of John's gospel and, and even of what he's illustrating in his letter here. The reason for John's gospel, the reason he gives for writing his gospel in John chapter 20, verse 31. Same John who wrote this letter we're in this morning. He says this, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The truth of the gospel is this. Apart from Christ, none are saved. But John has written his gospel so that everyone who reads it might know Jesus and be saved. Right? Praise God for that. Even Paul, though, the Apostle Paul understands God's love in the same way. That God's giving of his son is a demonstration of his love. As he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were rebellious against God, while we were reviling his name and spewing insults at him and rejecting his authority in our life, while we were those kind of people, Christ died for us. That's how God loves. God loves first and God loves best. God's dem- the true demonstration of love is in this, that God loved first and best by dealing with our sin in Jesus. In parallel with verse 9, verse 10 says this, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Shows again that love is not defined from a human perspective, but from a divine perspective. It's not love that we've loved God. It's love that He loved us first. It's love that He loved us when we didn't love Him. Love is found first in God as he sends, as he loves us and sends his son, which is his definitive loving act. If God, God has chosen one specific way, one very clear way to demonstrate his love for you and for me. And it is not to, to wave his hand and forget that sin has ever existed. No, it is that he sent his own son, God in the flesh, to be born a baby, that he would have flesh in which, with which to die for our sins, to pay for our sins. That's how God loves us. It's an act of, of jumping in front of the speeding bus so that it won't hit the reckless child, right? That kind of love. He says, John says that this kind of love is, he sent, that God sends his son as an act of his love to be propitiation for our sins. 
This word propitiation is used very few times in the New Testament. Twice in, in, in John's letter here in 1 John. Uh, once in a similar word used once in Romans. Another word used once in the book of Hebrews. Propitiation, strictly speaking, from an English standpoint. Propitiation is just the act of one person doing a favor for another person in order to bring that person into a more favor-giving mindset and, and will. It's kind of like if my daughter, if Abigail were to, uh, without being asked, you know, take out the trash and, and the recycling and put new new bag in the, the trash can and all of those things without being asked, doing a favor for me so that I might be more favorably disposed to do something nice for her. Take her to a movie or, I don't know, buy her a lollipop or whatever it is that pleases her heart, right? She's doing a favor for me so that I'll act favorably toward her. That's, a, that's kind of a plain understanding of propitiation. In this sense... Propitiation would mean, in, in a gospel sense, if we just understood it that way, would, would mean that Christ comes to pay some favor to God so that God will be pleased and more favorably disposed to act towards certain people. The problem with this sort of strict understanding of propitiation and this translation of this word, which is a difficult word to translate, and translators are doing the best that they can. But the, the problem with it, though, is that it, it reduces or it runs the risk of reducing salvation to, to Jesus merely making God happy. He's trying to do something nice for his father so that his father will act nicely. But, but salvation, propitiation in a biblical sense is so much more than that. What, what I think John has in view here is not that, that God is merely made happy because Jesus is born and then dies... But instead, I think what John is saying is that God loves us first and best by sending his own son, Jesus, to be born at Christmas so that some 33 years later, he might die as a substitute for the penalty we all deserve for our sin. It's not just making God happy. It's also it's also paying for something. Jesus does more than make God happy. He he on the cross, he takes our judgment for sin. He receives our sentence for sin, our death sentence for sin. And in so doing, he proves that God is just, that God punishes evil. But he also shows that that God is merciful and loving and gracious and that God has taken that punishment himself in his son, Jesus. John Piper puts Christmas this way. He says, the eternal son of God took on flesh at Christmas. He was born at baby in Bethlehem so that he could have something with which to suffer for our sins. There is, in this sense, an understanding that Christmas is just part of the gospel. It's just part of it. We can't celebrate the love of God at Christmas without also looking to the love of God displayed at Good Friday. Both both aspects of those things are equally part of the gospel story. The incarnation, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, taking on flesh, is absolutely necessary for the gospel. Because sin must be paid for by a human agent. He must become fully man, and yet at the same time fully God, so that he can pay for sins of other people. But he also must must die to pay for those sins. See how Christmas and and, and Easter, Christmas just brings full circle to Easter. And we've seen that every week as we've worked through the, the, the Bible these last several weeks. As we look at this true demonstration of love or demonstration of true love this morning, I think we should be challenged. We should be we should be exhorted, even even edified to change our definition of love. 
to, com- to take whatever concept of love that you have in your mind and to throw it out and, and adopt a new definition of love. That love is what God has done for us in Christmas, right? What God has done for us in sending Jesus to be born that he might die for our sins. Brother, sister, if you're here this morning, you, you don't know Jesus this way. Maybe you're just, you're visiting with us. You, you came with a family member. We're really glad that you're here. You might be here this morning, a, a non-believer, maybe skeptical of God, and, and you've asked yourself this question maybe this morning and, and several times maybe throughout your life. If, if God is so loving, if God is so good, how, how could this loving God then send anyone to hell? How could this loving God, if that's what he is, if God is love, how could he condemn anyone to an eternity in hell? To the person who's, who's abused or, or been mistreated by people who are supposed to love you, you're probably asking, if God is loving, why are these, these abusive people in my life? Why have I been treated this way? If God is so loving, why does he let me go through all the things that I've gone through? What, what's the point of that if God is love, like John says? Maybe you don't believe that at all. Maybe you think John's a liar. I would want to point your thinking in a different direction. Not that we would ask the question, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? But if the Bible is, if the Bible is, is true about who God is, that he is loving, that he is good, that he is merciful, that he is gracious, that he loves us first and best by sending his son. And if the Bible is also true about what it says we are as sinners who are rebelling against a, an eternal and perfect and holy God, Our question should not be, how could a loving God send anyone to hell? But the question should be, how could a good and moral and just God let anyone into heaven? If the Bible is true about what it says about God and it's true about what it says about us, then what we all deserve, even as Paul says in Romans 6, 23, what we deserve is death and separation. But instead, what God has offered through faith in Jesus and only in him is is not death and separation from God, but eternal life. Trusting in Jesus, knowing your creator. Change your definition of love this morning if you're, if you're not a believer. And I pray that you would and that in so doing, you would place your faith in Jesus for the first time ever today, this morning. Maybe you're here, you are a believer though. Even as a believer, you need to change your perspective of, of love. Maybe you're a believer who struggles with love because you've been abused and you have been mistreated. I would encourage you to look to God, the, the one who, who does not ever mistreat who always is, is just and good and right. And even in the midst of the disappointment in your life because of people who said that they loved you and, and in response they abused you or mistreated you, see and understand that God doesn't love that way. God in his love d- d- does not smite or, or spite uh, his children. God in his love sent his son to die for his children. Change your definition of love. Men in the church, what, what would happen if we changed our definition of, of love? Young men who are engaged or maybe single, husbands, fathers, what would happen in our lives and in our families if we changed our definition of love? If we understood that love is, is not about getting my way first, love is not about making sure that my wife does all the things for me that I want her to do or that my fiancé says all the right things at the right time, but that love is giving myself when, when, when my wife doesn't deserve it or my kids are acting up. See that love is self-sacrificing, is that love, love for God moves me to give myself for my wife, for my kids, for my family, for my fiance, and for the girlfriend I don't even have yet. How can you love sacrificially that, that person that's not yet even in your life? 
Men of the church, how much would our church change radically if we begin to change our definition of love and to love the church and love one another in the church this way by loving God first and most in our lives so that we can love truly the way that he does. Let's change our definition of love this morning. Finally, in verses 11 and 12, John gives us this holy obligation to love. A holy obligation to love. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, though God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Here in these verses, John gives two conditional statements. These are if-then statements, right? If this, then this. You have the condition and then you have the fulfillment. If this is the condition, the fulfillment is the then this. And we we get two of these in verses 11 and 12. And the first of these shows us that, that we are, the holy obligation to love exists because we are obligated by God's example. We're obligated by God's example. Beloved, if God loved us this way, if this is God's example of loving, we ought also to love one another. This kind of conditional statement that John uses here assumes that the condition is true. The if God loved us, that's true. And John is treating that as true. And he assumes it is true for the sake of the argument of the fulfillment, right? Which is the, then let us love one another. If God loved us in this way, John is saying, and most certainly indeed he has, no doubt about it, then we ought to love one another. Why love one another, though, and not, and not God? Why is the command from John to, to love each other? Well, love of God is implied here, certainly, as, as one receives Christ by faith, as we've talked about. Love of uh, one another, though, is, is commanded because it's not so obvious. It's not so um, readily available. It's not so logical or natural. Love for someone who has demonstrated love to us, like, like man loving God, Right. That's logical. That's natural because we don't we don't bite the hand that feeds, much less the hand that loves. But but it's less logical and it's and it's a little bit more unnatural. It's against our own sinful hearts to love those who have not loved us. And to love those who have not and cannot do anything for us in the manner that God has done. It's not natural for us to love in our sinful hearts, other sinful people. Yet because God has loved those who hated him. Because God loved those who in their sin were enemies to him, then we who know God have been born of God. We are under godly obligation as recipients of his love to love one another. To love those who do not naturally love, to love those who do not naturally profit one another. We are obligated to love them. Reading verse 11 along with verse 8, we see that one must know God in order to love this way. You can't love like God unless you also love God and have seen and tasted the love that God has for you. It is impossible to love like God loves unless you have have seen and experienced how God has loved you, an undeserving sinner. It's impossible to give grace where grace has not been tasted. It's impossible to give love where love has not been known. Very clearly, then, if a supposed Christian believer does not love his brother, does not love his sister in Christ, he evidences that, in fact, he does not know the saving effects of God's love to him in Christ. And so there is a holy obligation, brother, sister in Christ, you who are trusting in Jesus, there's a holy obligation to love your Christian brothers and sisters. Even Jesus says this in John chapter 13, right? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. You want to show you're following Christ? You want to show that you love Christ and that you know Christ, that you've been redeemed? Love one another. 
Secondly, we're also in verse 12, obligated to give evidence of God's love in us. We love out of obligation to give evidence of God's love working itself in us. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The first uh, sentence of verse 12, right? John there says, no one at any time has ever seen God. By this, we, we know that John is speaking of God the Father. We believe in an eternal triune God existing co-equally, co-eternally as three different persons, but made of the same stuff. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God and three persons. And here John is speaking of God the Father. No one has ever seen face-to-face God the Father. But indeed, we have seen Christ. And Christ is the face of the Father. He's the, the manifestation of the Father to us. As Paul says in Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so in some sense, we have seen God. But, but John is saying here, you, no one has ever seen God the Father. However, verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So love then is the evidence of the unseen God abiding, dwelling in us. Love for one another is evidence of that. The second half of verse 12 is the second of these conditional statements that we talked about. And it's one that communicates both present and ongoing consequences of the assumed condition. The assumed condition is, if we love one another, then the presumed and ongoing consequences are that God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Let's look at the condition. If indeed we love one another, John says. Here there's an, there's an implicit assumption that the love that is commanded in verse 11 is present. Right? It's a condition based on the previous condition. Right? If indeed you are loving because God has loved you in this way, then the result, God abides and his love is perfected in us. The unseen God, God the Father, lives in us through the Holy Spirit. Though the conditional statement, right, the if you love one another, if we love one another, that condition might lead us to believe that love for one another is what causes God to abide in us. But that would be a wrong way to understand this condition, right? That, that God abides in us because we love one another. It's not, that's not what John is saying. Instead, he's actually saying quite the opposite. If we understand verse 12 in conjunction with verse 7 and with verse 11 that we've already looked at, we see that love is the evidence of God abiding and not the cause of God abiding. Indeed, one cannot love unless he has been loved in the manner of verse 11. God showing his love to us. And so then love toward others, church, is, is also the evidence of, of, of God's love being perfected in us. As we love one another, we can know that God abides in us and that his love is being perfected. It's being worked out in us. Again, the, the existence of brotherly love, the practice of brotherly love as a result of knowing God, of being born again, shows that the believer is growing in his or her knowledge and experience of God's love and grace to the believer in Jesus. So as we love, we're giving evidence of God's love being worked out in us. As we love people who don't deserve our love, and as we are loved undeservedly by others, we can see God's love in us, God's own nature and character, the character of Jesus Christ being worked out in us in this way. This condition, verse 12, is probably better understood this way. Because God abides in us through the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ, we love one another and his love is growing in us as evidence of our salvation. That's how I would read verse 12. 
So then this morning, church, as we think about Christmas and God's demonstration of love to us at Christmas, which ultimately points us to Easter and seeing the undeserved love that God has for us and sending his son to be born that he might die for our sins. Let us then, who are professing faith in Jesus this Christmas, let us fulfill our holy duty to worship God by loving others. Let me say that again. Let us fulfill our holy duty to worship God by loving others. You're saying duty? Obligation? I have to do something? I thought we were saved by grace, not by works, Stephen. Now you're telling me to do stuff, fulfill a duty. Yeah, I am. But I'm telling you to do that because the Bible tells us to do that. Ephesians 2, right, tells us it's by grace we are saved through faith. This not of ourselves, it's, it's not by works so that no man can boast. It's a gift of God. But Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. That he, is, that he has set aside and put for us in eternity past for us to do. Worship, then, as a believer, it's not a work to earn salvation, but worship is a wondrous duty. It's a good thing that we get to do. Loving one another is a good thing that we get to do, even when it's hard, because it's what God has saved us to do. It's more than just mere religion. Worship is more than just showing up on a Sunday for a worship service, Christian. Worship is, is more than, than five minutes of prayer that you give to God in the morning or a, a half-asleep prayer at the last you know, waking part of the day before you drift off into sleep. Worship is so much more than that. Worship is something that encompasses every moment of our lives. Every second of our lives should be devoted, Christian, in worship to God as a duty, right? As a joyous, wondrous duty because He has saved us. 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. Just a few verses before our text this morning. John writes this. He says, this is his commandment, right? This is his command. This is the work you are to do. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John says... Christ does give us commandments, Christian. He does give us things to do. He has ordered and structured our life by his word and his instruction to us. And his instruction to us is that we believe in him and that we love one another, even as he commanded us. Even Jesus says in John chapter 13, verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you, he says to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you. Do this, Jesus says. I'm giving you a command. These are marching orders. You're not not allowed to skip out on this one. Love one another. And then in John 14, verse 15, Jesus even has the audacity to say, if you love me, another conditional statement, right? If you love me, if it's true that you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do what I say. But his commandments are not burdensome. His commands are are not hard. His commands are not legalistic. What has he commanded us to do? To love. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit in us, making us right with the Father to know His love, we could do that. Even at the end of Matthew, before Jesus ascends to heaven, after His resurrection, He tells His disciples to make more disciples by baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. His commands are good and His commands are necessary. Following His commands are necessary for the life of the believer. Not to gain salvation, right? But that we might walk and mature and grow in our knowledge of God, in our ability to love others the way that God has loved us in Christ. 
Love for one another than church is a blessed duty. It is a blessed obligation that the mature and growing believer in Jesus will perform and will practice out of worship and obedience to their king who has so graciously given himself for their salvation. Commands from God are not a bad thing. They're for our good. And they're for the good of the gospel among us. That as we love one another, God's, perf- God's love is then perfected in us. It grows. It matures. And that the world might see the way we love one another and know that we are disciples of Christ. And in knowing that we are disciples of Christ would know that we have the gospel. Right? The good news which points the world to Jesus. Right? This way of salvation. God's gift of salvation. Faith in Him. And only in Him that they might know their God, that they might know their Creator and enter into an eternal relationship with God, the Father of love, uh, mutual love between them and the Father, knowing true love, living out true love, and a relationship of worship that will endure for all eternity. At Christmas, God God gives us a a much better gift than a a love letter or, uh, or, I don't know, Barbie Hot Wheels or, you know, something, I don't know. Power wheels, think power wheels, right? God gives us a, 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 a greater gift. He gives us a, a gift that doesn't just meet a need for a day. He gives us a gift that meets a need for a lifetime. And that is the gift of his son, born of a virgin, that he might live a sinless life and die on the cross in your place and in mine. Friend, if you're here this morning, you've never received God's gift of salvation. This Christmas, know that God still stands to offer you this gift. I don't know, I don't know a single one in here this morning who maybe have opened gifts or are anticipating opening gifts, that you've done anything to deserve the gifts or to earn the gifts that are about to be given you later today or that you've opened this morning. If you live in my house, you know my children. They don't deserve the gifts that they've been given. But we love them. But we love them. And so we give to them generously because we love them. But what's, what's needed for the The gifts are under the tree. They're wrapped. They're ready to be received. But, but what, is it, what does it take for a, a, our children to receive those gifts? You've got to open the thing. You've got to open it up. You've got to see what it is, experience it, know it, bring it into your, to your life in a, in, a, in a similar way. That's what it is to receive Christ, to know that God has extended to you this gift of salvation that you don't deserve, that your sins can be forgiven, that you can know your Creator, that you can have eternal life. All that's left, you, the individual, is to open the gift. You've done nothing to deserve it, but God is, is offering it to you anyway. But you must receive it. And how do you receive it? You receive it by faith in God's Son, born at Christmas, died on Good Friday, raised again on Easter for your sins and for mine. In a moment, the, uh, Danny and the praise team are going to lead us in a, a time of singing as we respond this morning. I would encourage you this morning, if you've never received that gift of salvation, let today be the best Christmas of your life to date. Receive the best gift you have ever been given on Christmas. Receive the gift of salvation from God today. I'll be here this morning to to talk with you, to counsel with you about how you can trust Christ for salvation and begin walking as a new believer. If you're a mature or growing believer and and you just need to change your definition of love this morning to to understand Christmas as the the beginning of God's perfect demonstration of love to us, then then spend this time in, in worship and in prayer. The altar's open if you want to pray. If you have stars left over that, that we placed on the trees this morning and you've maybe written a prayer of thanksgiving or, or something to God just for the gift that you've received uh, of salvation or just some of the way that God's blessed you, let this also be a time where you can respond by continuing to put stars on the, on the trees if you want to. It's just a, a demonstration of your gratitude for God. But let's respond in worship this morning at Christmas.
There's no better day to worship together as a, as a church. And, and friend, if you're not a believer, let, their, let, let today not go by without receiving the gift.